today from Camp Rete, so I'm assuming that means everything is going well. And I heard did he, one of the ongoing problems is that they get these kids from uh, from down here at sea level. They take them up there to ten thousand feet and get a bunch of kids the first couple of days with altitude sickness. But uh, as of Tuesday, they didn't have any kids with altitude sickness, so that was a big, um, good prayer, prayer uh, or praise request. Uh, let me see if I can t- turn my screens on here. So we need to continue to pray for Camp Arete until everybody gets home and safe. And also be in prayer for uh, finalizing, getting things set up for the um, uh, September 8th to 11th conference uh, related to Israel, and then the men's campout. Those are the only, only other two announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord. We talked about this as part of our study last week in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, and I'm always amazed at how many people just have trouble getting it, that um, when you have these idioms in the text, as we saw last time, removing sin, uh, James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, these are metaphors for the fact that when we have sin in the life, God doesn't hear us, and we have to somehow be cleansed, we have to remove that uh, garment that has been defiled by sin. That's the idea in that word apatithemi we studied last time in, in chapter 2, verse 1. The only verse that tells us how we get clean is First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. An uncleansed believer cannot walk with the Lord. And so we have to be cleansed, and that's through confession. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are cleansed, so you can walk by the Spirit, abide in Christ, abide in the light, abide in truth. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together, to fellowship around your word, to focus on your word, to come to understand how to understand your word, come to understand the truth of your word. Father, we pray that you might help us tonight to think and to think clearly, to reflect upon uh, 
understanding of your word, and especially in this important section of First Peter. Father, we continue to pray for those uh, who are in our congregation who are looking for a job, who need a job, who also have health problems. We pray for others who are traveling, others who are fighting uh, uh, life-threatening diseases. We pray that you'd strengthen them and help them. Father, above all, we pray that you would continue to provide for this ministry. You would continue to sustain us. And we're so thankful for opportunities that we each have to present the gospel and to explain uh, the truth of how a person can have eternal life. We pray that this might continue. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, let me change this slide a minute. And tonight what we're going to talk about is how we understand First Peter. Now you may think, well, I, you already understand it, but uh, there are other issues that are going on here. And when I ended last week, I said um, that this next section, which is verses 4, uh, 4 through 10, is a really challenging section. I've seen this coming sort of like that proverbial freight train that you see. You see the light at the end of the tunnel, and you hope it's not a freight train, and it is, because it's really difficult. I've gone through this. I've worked it through with a, a pastor study group that we that meets on Friday mornings. We've worked through this. There's been a lot of discussion amongst uh, our group of pastors as to just how we understand this particular passage. Now, you may read it and think that you were taught correctly. Maybe you were, maybe you weren't, maybe it needs to be refined, but there are a lot of issues in this particular passage. And I said last time, if I hadn't figured them out by tonight, then we would probably just have prayer and fellowship and go home. Who brought the donuts? Nobody? I guess we'll have to study the Word. Okay, so we're going to look at this. We have to always have to look at context, and just as a reminder from what we covered last time, that when we look at the main section after we get out of the introduction, the introduction focuses on how to handle fiery trials. So we know from that that First Peter is going to be about how to live the spiritual life in the midst of some sort of opposition, some sort of persecution, just the regular, as well as the regular challenges of life. And then there's a series of imperatives that aren't clear in the English, but each one of those involves two or three verses. We're to rest our hope fully on the grace of God in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 14. We're to set ourselves apart to the service of God, be holy for all. God is holy. That's the point there. First Peter one fifteen to sixteen. Third, we're to conduct our lives in fear of God, in fearful respect of God, uh, because we know that there will be accountability someday, and that's in First Peter uh, one seventeen to twenty one. That, that covers that section where we reflect back on our salvation. That's that's important for understanding why we need to to conduct our, the time of our stay in fear. And then in verses 22 to 25, the command is to love one another, and that is with integrity. And it's based upon the fact that we have been saved, regenerate, and this is the mark of the growing uh, disciple. 
And there's an emphasis there as we come out of that section on the importance of the Word of God. And in that section, you have two different words used for the Word of God. You have the word logos, which is often refers to the written Word of God. It can also refer to Jesus as the living Word of God. And then you also have the word rhema, which is the spoken Word of God. Now, when we get to 1 Peter 2.2, 2, uh, most of us have memorized that, that we are to desire the sincere milk of the word. But the Greek there isn't logos or rhema, it's logikon, which is really talking about the logical instruction and teaching of the word of God. It has to do with that, uh, that which is rational, that which is reasonable, and it's, it's the, the same root as logos, which you can hear where we get our English word, English word logic. And then we have this command, the fifth command, to crave or desire the sincere milk of the word in First Peter 2, 1 through 3. Then there's what seems to be sort of a sidetrack in verses 4 through 10. And then there's a conclusion that we are to conduct ourselves honorably for the glory of God, and that's in verses 11 and 12. So the basic argument, just to think contextually, is that as Peter comes out of these first five commands, he says he's argued that because we're regenerate, because we have heard the gospel of grace and received it, we have been uh, regenerated through this uh, imperishable seed, and we're like a brand-new baby. And that's who he's talking to. These these are uh, Jewish background believers, as I've said since we began the study, and they have heard the gospel, and they've responded to the gospel, and now they're saved. And the question is, what next? Especially in the midst of this, this opposition or persecution that is at the heart of this, um, this section. And then as a result of having made those first, um, first f- four or five commands... Peter then says, therefore, so he's reaching uh, a conclusion from what he has said about regeneration, that because we're a new creature in Christ and we're a new baby in Christ, we're to do something. We're to lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all evil speaking, and then as newborn babes desire the uh, pure or sincere milk of the word, that we may grow thereby, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. And I covered this last time because this sets the stage for what he's going to say in verses verses 4 through 10. And the point here in the Greek grammar, to summarize it, is that the, this is a kind of structure where the participle that is translated laying aside is what's called antecedent circumstance. And basically what that means is you have to do that first before you can fulfill the main command in the second verse. And when we think about this logically, it can't mean stop sinning so you can then study the Word of God. The, the, the significance of the grammar is first do this, and then you can desire the milk of the Word. But if laying aside all these sins is something that, that you have to do before you can study the Word, then let's fold up shop and go home because none of us are ever going to become perfect. So it has to mean something else. And I, as I pointed out last time, that verb apotithemi is used to remove a set of clothes. And the sin is viewed here as that which has defiled our garments experientially. And so we have to remove them. 
It's a picture of being cleansed. And as I pointed out in the introduction, the only thing in the Scripture that tells us how to be cleansed, there's numerous places that talk about examine yourself, uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners, in James, in James 3. Numerous other passages that use this, this imagery. But 1 John 1, 9 is the only thing that gives us the mechanics, the way you're cleansed, and that's by confessing sin. Now, a lot of people get the idea that I just confess sin and that's it and move on, but the idea isn't just to keep confessing it and doing it, but as we grow, those sins will become less and less an issue in our life. Now, somebody pointed out afterwards, well, as I grow and I grow, the sins become more and more apparent to me and I'm more aware of it. That's true, but that's part of growth. So now you may not be sinning in such obvious ways. You've just become a little more self-deceived and and uh, we work at more uh, at, at deeper, more uh, subtle levels. But those are exposed, and that's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in the process of our of our spiritual growth. So it's this first this, then this. It's not as simple as it sounds that you just quit sinning because nobody does. And we've got a number of other passages that I pointed out with this same structure and this same idea. So the primary thought here is this command to desire the pure milk of the word. And that's how we grow. And we look at our regular chart here dealing with phase one, justification, and then phase two, the spiritual life, and phase three, glorification. We're saved from the penalty of sin at the instant of salvation, but the whole spiritual life is being saved from the power of sin. And when Jesus was teaching this through a... um, visual training aid type of lesson by washing the disciples' feet in John 13. When he came to wash uh, Peter's feet, Peter said, no, Lord, you're not going to do this. And the Lord said, what? Peter, if you don't let me do this, you'll have no part with me. And the word there in the Greek is miros, and it means an inheritance. It doesn't mean you won't be saved, but if I, I don't wash your feet, which is a picture of confession of sin and cleansing, then there won't be any inheritance because you'll be living your life out of fellowship the whole time. And so then the Lord, then Peter says, well, wash all of me. And the Lord said, you are already fully cleansed. I only need to wash your feet. And the picture there comes from the Old Testament that at the beginning of his ministry, the high priest is bathed, washed from head to toe, but afterward, just his feet and his hands are cleansed. So that's the process of growing in the Christian life. Without confession of sin, John, 1 John 1, 9 doesn't mean, getting, it doesn't mean confess your sin so you can be saved. He's writing to believers. So, And then the third phase is saved from the presence of sin. And then the last verse said, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious and uh, that's the verb guomai, which means not just to just put a little bit on your tongue, but to fully experience something. And if you were a Jewish background believer, then a verse that would come to mind would be Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. But look at the parallel to that. What does it mean to taste and see that the Lord is good? Tasting and seeing are not things we normally put together. You know, taste this this great dish I just cooked, and then see something. Those usually don't go to don't connect. 
But in the second stanza of that psalm, it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So trusting in God is parallel to tasting and seeing. It's fully experiencing that trust in God, fully experiencing God. And you see that God is good. So there's, there's your parallel. Now, when we move from there into the next section, we read these 10 verses, and they're loaded with uh, references and allusions and quotes back to the Old Testament. And as I've taken time many times to take us through these, these issues of how do you understand these, these quotes from the Old Testament, what do they mean? Uh, it's really important hermeneutically uh, to identify that. And sometimes it's not easy. And I pointed this out last time that uh, Jim Myers came over last week on Wednesday, and we spent about three hours together talking about not just the issues here, but it, it's tangential to a number of other issues. And it's also important because within our uh, doctrinal or theological uh, milieu, there are different views of this that are significant. And I'm going to go through some of that. And I was telling someone earlier today, the trouble with doing something like this is you spend about 24 hours or more studying these issues. And over the course of probably the last six or seven years, I probably spent closer to 60 hours. And then you finally come to a resolution and you can explain it in 10 minutes. But then I don't have anything to say about the next verse. So we have to understand why I'm saying what I'm saying. Sometimes people say, well, why do you go into so much detail? Because just like last week, I go through all this detail and go through the grammar, and I still have somebody who can't quite get the obvious. And I get asked questions. And the answer to most of the questions I get comes from a de the details of, of going through the text. And so in one sense, I go through, I drill down so much into detail as self-defense because if I don't, I will be asked the questions and then I'll have to do it. So it's just easier to do it up front. So when we look at this passage, one of the things we have to do is understand who is it that Peter is addressing. Remember in Galatians, Paul said that in Galatians chapter 2, Paul said that Peter is the apostle to the Jews. That's his sphere of operation. That doesn't mean he never went to the Gentiles because we know he did. Acts chapter 10, he's the uh, first apostle to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And so even though Peter went to Gentiles, he's primarily has a ministry to Jews. Even though Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, that doesn't mean he never gave the gospel to Jews because everywhere he went, he started in the synagogue because that's where there were people who had the same frame of reference in terms of the Old Testament. And many responded to the gospel that Jesus was the Messiah. And it was from that group that he built those uh, initial churches on all of, his, all of his missionary journeys. So we have to be reminded that Peter is the uh, apostle to the Jews. And also that in the very beginning of uh, Peter, when he says that they are um, that he's writing to the pilgrims, and that can that word could mean a, uh, different things, but they're the pilgrims of the diaspora, and the diaspora is a term that is always used in the New Testament and in 
uh, literature at that time as a technical term to refer to the Jews that are scattered throughout the world. But that becomes a big hermeneutical issue. If he's writing to Jews, the question that we have to ask is, what difference does that make? I had one, per- two people grin. Okay, come on, let's let's chuckle a little. What difference does that make? That's really the issue in hermeneutics. This isn't something that just sitting there, because there's a he, Peter has a lot of quotes from the Old Testament. So obviously, the fact that he's writing to Jews is important, and we'll come back to that uh, in just a minute. But there are different views, uh, on, and it affects how you interpret the passages in the epistle. Now, sometimes it doesn't make a huge difference. Sometimes it makes more of a difference. But this is where a lot of confusion exists today is is this issue of, is Peter writing to Jews or is he writing to Christians or to Gentile Christians? And what difference does that make? So I tried to break this down a little bit as we look at this section in 1 Peter just to remind ourselves of what these issues are. There's basically two views that we've seen historically. The first view is that Peter's writing to Gentile Christians who are scattered and being persecuted. See, they're saying it's the it's what and I'll give you a couple of quotes on this, is that the uh, just as the Jews were scattered, now the Gentiles are being scattered and persecuted. So there there's this assignment of Jewish terminology to the Gentiles. And often in reading the commentaries, they try to identify these persecutions as Roman persecutions, but it can't be the Neronian persecutions. That's a little, uh, it's, it, this was written a little bit before that. So they get all sidetracked into that. Now, so there's going to be two views. Peter's writing to the Gentiles, Peter's writing to the Jews. By the way, the oldest in the second, third century, nearly all of the uh, apostolic fathers and the early church writers understood that Peter was writing to Jews. What happens by the late 200s? What starts seeping in in the late 200s, mid-200s? Replacement theology. Once that becomes institutionalized by the time of Augustine, nobody's thinking of it in terms of Jews anymore because Jews have been the Jewishness of the New Testament has becomes basically marginalized by early Christian anti-Semitism. And that has a huge impact on the inability of the early church or the early medieval church to properly interpret a lot of things because they basically ignore the Jewish background. That, that would have to, if they paid attention to it, that would mean they were having a little bit more of a literal interpretation and a historical grammatical interpretation, but they get away from that completely and just jump into allegory. So in the first uh, uh, way this is applied when, it's, when they take the view that's written to Gentile Christians is that the terms that are used for Israel in the Old Testament, and see, we'll see this down in verse verses 9 and 10. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Those are four terms that are used for Israel in the Old Testament. And here, Peter's writing to these recipients, and he says, you are a chosen people, I mean, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. What does that mean? And so in this first view, what happens is that they, uh, the, the terms that are used for Israel in the Old Testament are now 
uh, used in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 for the New Testament church. And this shows, in their view, that Israel has been totally and permanently replaced in God's plan by the church. This is a foundation of replacement theology. Now, one of the reasons I'm bringing this out is because replacement theology is having a little bit of a resurgence within evangelicalism. Now, we always have known that it's out there uh, with uh, Roman Catholic theology, even though they say, oh, we don't believe in it anymore. They still hold to it. Uh, They may not be... um, engaged in pogroms against the Jews, but they still hold to the fact that there's no literal future Jewish-based kingdom that will come. So I want to cover a little bit on replacement theology, and I know I've covered this on Sunday morning, but this happens every now and then where I'm in a study on Tuesday or Thursday night, and it's almost identical to what I'm doing on Sunday morning, but Aside from y'all sitting here, the people who listen online, will, be, will they'll be listening to Matthew without listening to Peter at the same time. And they'll be listening to Peter, and they won't be listening to Matthew because they're, just list, they're, they're going to be listening to one series and then the other series. Only if you're sitting here in West Houston Bible Church are you hearing these lessons taught at almost the same time. So what are the definitions of replacement theology? Walt Kaiser. Walt's been past president of Evangelical Theological Society. He's a president of, of um, Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He's a well-known, highly respected Old Testament scholar. He said, replacement theology declares that the church, Abraham's spiritual seed, had replaced national Israel in that it had transcended and fulfilled the terms of the covenant given to Israel, which covenant Israel had lost because of disobedience. Now, this is important, saying that the promises to Abraham are, he's basically saying they're transferred from Israel to the to the church. Now, when I was in Israel for the Yad Vashem seminar a couple of months ago, there was a rabbi who said, well, replacement theology is, that all Christianity is replacement theology, that, that Jesus is going to replace the Torah. That's not replacement theology. Replacement theology isn't saying that the church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's saying that the Abrahamic covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the descendants are are not going to be fulfilled literally to, to, to Israel. They are given now spiritually to the church. Ronald DeProse in his book, Israel and the Church, says that replacement theology says that the church completely and permanently replaces ethnic Israel in the working out of God's plan and as recipient of Old Testament promises to Israel. So if ethnic Israel is replaced, then ethnic Israel has no significance anymore. The Abrahamic covenant that I will bless those who bless you is is null and void now. That doesn't matter anymore because God doesn't have a future plan for Israel. And Knox Seminary uh, once published an open letter uh, back in the uh, early 2000s because uh, evangelicals were making a big deal about supporting Israel. George Bush was president. We need to support Israel against uh, Iraq and Iran and all of this. And they said, no, you don't. You don't need to do this. James Kennedy, some of you know who he is, pastor of a, a large church there in Florida, and James Kennedy helped start Knox Seminary. He's a, a product of that church there. So they were completely into replacement theology. 
another uh, writer on the topic, Kendall Solon, says, according to this teaching, supersessionism, which is another term for replacement theology, according to this teaching, God chose the Jewish people after the fall of Abraham in order to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior. And after Christ came, however, the special role of the Jewish people came to an end, and its place was taken by the church, the new Israel. So in their view, the church is the new Israel. So all of the promises that were given to Israel in the Old Testament are now spiritualized and given to the church. And this idea is really the seedbed for Christian anti-Semitism, which also came to to the foreground in the middle part of the second century between 150 and 200, and is a result of this kind of a shift that Israel is no longer important in the plan of God. Now, there's another book out that is a, a detailed book based on Michael Vlock's doctoral dissertation, and he says there's two basic things related to replacement theology, that the nation Israel has somehow completed or forfeited its status as the people of God and will never again possess a unique role or function apart from the church. See, as dispensationalists, within dispensational theology, we understand that God has temporarily set aside Israel, but he hasn't blocked the Abrahamic covenant promises of blessing and cursing. That again, God will restore the focus to Israel, the end of Daniel's 70th week, this will come about in the future, and Jesus will return and establish his kingdom. Uh, Michael Vlock says that the second point is that the church is now the true Israel. This is replacement theology. The church is a true Israel that has permanently replaced or superseded national Israel as the people of God. So obviously they don't believe in literal interpretation because the church means Israel and Israel means the church. You didn't know that. How could you figure that out if you were in the Old Testament and Abraham said, God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this piece of land and here are the boundaries. Abraham, how could Abraham say, oh, that means heaven, doesn't it? He, he, he didn't have a scratch and sniff card to scratch it off and see what it really said, right? Now, this started in the early church. You have Irenaeus, who's one of the early church fathers, who's really great in many, many areas. And in his work against heresies, he wrote, For inasmuch as the former, that is the Jews, have rejected the Son of God and cast him out of the vineyard, where does that imagery cast him out of the vineyard come from? Matthew 21, we just studied that in the last couple of weeks. Cast him, or we studied it this last week. Cast him out of the vineyard. When they slew him, God has, also, God has justly rejected them and given to the Gentiles outside the, outside the vineyard the fruits of its cultivation. See, that's why I went, went through this in detail this last Sunday morning. Cyprian, another early church father, he preceded Augustine as the bishop of uh, uh, in North Africa, he was the bishop in Carthage, and he said, um, basically, I've endeavored to show that the Jews, according to what had before been foretold, had departed from God, had lost God's favor, which had been given to them in past time, and had been and and had been promised them for the future, while the Christians had succeeded to their place. So his dates are around two fifty to three hundred. He also said, when we Christians, when we pray, say, Our Father, because he has begun to be ours and has ceased to be the father of the Jews who have forsaken him. 
Now, Block gives five points. I just want to summarize these, but I want you to look at these verses. He gives five points that, that summarize replacement theology. He says, first of all, national Israel has been permanently rejected as the people of God. What's the verse for that? Matthew twenty one forty three. That's what we studied just this last week. That's why I got into replacement theology there. A lot of similarities between what we're studying in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, and the imagery that's in the, the, the parable we just studied this last Sunday. Second, he says, application of Old Testament language to the church shows, this is what replacement theologians say, that Old Testament language that's applied to the church shows that the church is now identified as the new Israel. The term new Israel never occurs in Scripture. And he gives a list of verses, Galatians 6.16, Paul uses the phrase, and greet the Israel of God among you. What he's doing is he's talking to a congregation, and among that congregation there's a subset of Jews, the remnant, who have trusted in Jesus as Messiah. And so when he talks about the Israel of God, he's saying, He's talking about the Jews in your congregation. He's not talking about uh, the new Israel. So, but notice he has First Peter two nine through ten is the support for that point. Uh, replacement theologians also say that the unity of Jews and Gentiles now rules out a future role or function for national Israel. And he cites Ephesians two eleven to twenty two. We'll look at that or see that as we go through our study tonight. And Romans eleven seventeen to 24. And fourth, he says that the church's relationship to the new covenant indicates that the church alone inherits the Old Testament covenants originally promised to national Israel. Okay, so that's replacement theology. You can see how this forms the presuppositional grid on which Christian anti-Semitism can develop. And then fifth, he says, New Testament silence on the restoration of Israel is proof that Israel will not be restored as a nation. I guess if you're going to interpret Revelation 12 and 13 uh, symbolically or allegorically, then it doesn't talk about the restoration of Israel. But see, this also gets to a point where what, what it, in covenant theology especially, and this is influencing non-covenant schools. It's influencing even Dallas Seminary. Last issue of their theological journal, there's an article there that's presenting what they call a Christ-centered interpretation. You interpret the Old Testament on the basis of New Testament revelation. The problem with that is nobody in the Old Testament really knew what God was saying because the key doesn't come until Jesus comes. So how can you understand anything in the Old Testament, if you don't have the New Testament key, that's just absurd. Okay, so as we look, that's a summary of, of replacement theology. Now, another thing that we uh, that we see is that there are certain phrases that are used of the Jews in the Old Testament that are also applied to the church. How do we understand that? Is this that one? Their view is replacement theology says, see, when these terms are used of both the church and the, and and Israel, it means there's there's identity. Is there identity, or is there a, a, an a, an analogical an analogy uh, analogical application? For example, the Jews are called God's own possession. They're called a special treasure. In Exodus 19.5 and in Titus 2.14, uh, the church is his own special people. 
and this is uh, a term that is used in the uh, periusius in the in the Greek is the word special, and that's what's used in both of those places. But just because the Jews are special and the church is special doesn't mean they're identical. And that's, that's the mistake that's made there. Both are called my people, but just because both are called my people doesn't mean they're the same people. Second Chronicles 7.14, which says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, and everybody misuses this, if you go all the way through Second Chronicles, for seven previous chapters, every time God says, my people, it always refers to Israel. It never refers to anybody else. Only Jeremiah 18, when God says, if a nation that has rebelled against me turns back to me, then I will bless them. That's the principle. That's the verse that should be quoted, not Second Chronicles 7.14, because that's for Israel, and it's God's answer to Solomon's prayer. God is not saying that you can apply this to, uni- to the United States or to Brazil or to Russia or anybody else because they're not my people. The only people you've got at the time are the Jews, that special covenant people, and that's the whole context. But in Acts fifteen fourteen, this is the context of the Jerusalem Council. We're talking about Peter... Uh, James says, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people, and that's the word laos, which is a general word for people. It's not ethnos or nation. We're going to have to get into a whole study on the distinction of those words. And uh, But at that point, we see that um, that they're called a people. And Second Corinthians 6.16, there's a quote from the Old Testament, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And that's applied to the church. So there are people, but they're not the same people. It's not a replacement people. Also, you have the word circumcision. In Jeremiah 9.25, God says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. So the Jews were referred to as the circumcised. both Jonathan and David in 1 Samuel talk about the Philistines as being the uncircumcised ones. So this idea that the Jews, because of the Abrahamic covenant, are circumcised, that's a title for them. Uh, Deuteronomy ten sixteen and 36 talk about uh, a spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, and that's what is used by, by um, Paul in Philippians 3, 3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. That's a spiritual circumcision. So uh, it's different. It's applied in a different way to the church. So when we look at these passages, we see that in replacement theology, if these terms are used for Israel and again for the church, then that means that the church is identified as the new, as the new Israel. So we have to break this down because this is this is the battlefield's passage here in First Peter uh, two four through ten. Now the significance of this is indicated by one commentary uh, commentary writer Scott McKnight, who says that there's no passage in the New Testament that more explicitly associates the Old Testament terms for Israel with the New Testament church than this one. So if this is the most explicit, that's why we have to take time with this, because this is the heart of this battle with replacement theology. 
So we have to under, understand this. Now, when we look at especially um, verse 9 and 10, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, uh, his own special people. We have to understand that all those terms come out of the Old Testament. They come from two basic passages. They come from Isaiah 43:20. Right there at the end it says, uh, to give drink to my people, that's a Hebrew word, am, and my chosen, bachar. So that's where you get the idea of a chosen generation. That comes from Isaiah 43:20. Exodus 19, 5 and 6, God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Israel as a whole was supposed to be a kingdom of priests with a subgroup, the Levites, who were a special priest tribe for the nation. But just as the Levites were the priest priest tribe for the nation, so the nation of Israel is supposed to be the priest nation, the kingdom of priests for all the nations, all the goyim. Now, this leads us to ask the question of what what do we do with this? How are we supposed to understand this? And I'm going to give you a couple of quotes here because I want you to catch the drift of this. Now, some of these people who are saying this don't mean anything to some of you. There are people listening and some people here, a couple of these names may mean something, but there's a reason I'm quoting them is they're significant people today. And in uh, the, the first one comes from Wayne Grudem. Now, Wayne Grudem is, I think he may be president of of Phoenix Theological Seminary now. And he wrote a systematic theology that came out probably about 10 years ago that everybody touts as the best evangelical uh, uh, systematic theology today. And it's really terrible. I mean, I've caught him in a number of of errors where he... he, um, One place he he cites... uh, He's dealing with the sons of God, Beneha Elohim... And he comes up with, well, see, that, that, that whole view that those are the angels is contradicted by this passage in Deuteronomy. The trouble is, in Deuteronomy, it's referring to Israel as the sons of Yahweh. He didn't even look at the Greek text to see that there are different names for God there. I mean, they're just, it's just loaded with those kind of errors. But I didn't quite, he's also vineyard. That means he, he's, he's a third wave charismatic. But he says, regarding this, he says, on verses 4 to 10, Peter says that God has bestowed on the church almost all the blessings promised to Israel in the Old Testament. The dwelling place of God is no longer the Jerusalem temple, for Christians are the new temple of God. The priesthood, able to offer acceptable sacrifice to God, is no longer descended from Aaron, for Christians are now the true royal priesthood. God's chosen people are no longer said to be those physically descended from Abraham. Uh, Let me just go on so we don't bog down on this. The nation blessed by God is no longer the nation of Israel. The people of Israel are no longer said to be the people of God. Uh, And he just goes on. He says, concludes, moreover, Peter takes these quotations from context which repeatedly warn that God will reject his people who persist in rebellion against him. Uh, who reject the precious cornerstone which he has established, what more could be needed in order to say with assurance that the church has now become the true Israel of God? Now, this is a major 
evangelical theologian, president of a seminary, author of the most popular systematic theology today, and this is having an impact. And when you get people who buy things like Logos Bible software, they get a lot of different systematic theologies. This will be one of them, and this is one that's promoted because it's the most, the most popular. In contrast, one of the most well-respected uh, scholars who actually was a chaplain was uh, decorated in World War II for the British. Um, uh, C.E.B. Cranfield, in his volume on Romans, says, it's only where the church persists in refusing to learn this message where it secretly, perhaps unconsciously, believes that its own existence is based on human achievement and so fails to understand God's mercy to itself that it is unable to believe in God's mercy for still unbelieving Israel and so entertains the ugly and unscriptural notion that God has cast off his people Israel and simply replaced it by the Christian church. He just refutes it. Two-volume work on on Romans and says this idea that the church replaces Israel is just it, it's just arrogant and it is wrong. He said these three chapters Romans 9 to 11 emphatically forbid us to speak of the church as having once and for all taken the place of the Jewish people. So what I've done so far is we've looked at this idea that the first interpretive grid is that Peter's writing to Gentile Christians. One way that that's applied is to say that he's writing to Gentile Christians and they've completely replaced Israel. And there's no future for Israel in God's plan whatsoever. The second way in which that's applied is one you're probably more familiar with. The terms used for Israel are generally applied to the church-age believers, but without identifying them as the replacement for Israel. Now, this is the view that probably most professors at Dallas Seminary when I was there uh, adopted. Uh, Men like Tom Constable said all the figures of the church that Peter chose here originally referred to Israel. However, with Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ, God created a new body of people through whom he now seeks to accomplish the same purposes he sought to achieve through Israel, but by a different means. This verse, that at first might seem to equate the church and Israel, on careful examination shows as many differences between these groups as similarities. So what he's saying is, Peter's written to Gentile Christians, but they're not replacing Israel. You, You can't go there. Uh, Roger Raymer, who wrote in the first uh, the commentary in First Peter and Bible Knowledge Commentary, says the same thing. He says uh, just at the end here, as Israel was a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so too believers today are chosen or priests or holy and belong to God. Similarity does not mean identity. So they reject this replacement theology idea, but they still believe that that it's written to Gentiles. Then we have another view that comes along, and that, well, I didn't create another slide for it. That is this view. Application, the second way of applying this is that the, is that the terms for Israel, that change the page on my notes. The second way that this is applied is that the terms for Israel indicate that, that, that this is, directed to Jewish background believers 
and restricted to Jewish background believers. It doesn't apply to Gentile Christians, that Peter is talking only to Jewish background believers as the believing remnant and reminding them of what they have as Jewish background believers. This is, uh, this is in terms of our environment, this is most clearly stated by, um, by Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Arnold writes in his commentary, and, and the reason this is important, Arnold came out of this commentary probably seven or eight years ago on the Jewish epistles, and I think he did a really good thing because he caught everybody's attention and said, this is written to Jewish Christians. Okay? I think that's very clear from the language. And he's not the first one. In fact, um, several people have noted and listed uh, that, that in the first couple of centuries of the early church, this was the common view that First Peter was written to Jewish background believers. But once replacement theology came in, once um, you ignored the Jewishness of Jesus and the Jewishness of the early church, then what happens is uh, you start allegorizing and the Jewishness of some of this is no longer relevant. And as long as replacement theology held a, a, a chokehold on the church, and that goes through the Protestant Reformation, the first generation of Protestant reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, they couldn't get away from it. They hadn't figured it out. They were, they were just doing good to get the gospel, get people back to the sola scriptura and sola fideo, uh, by grace alone, by scripture alone, by faith alone. So it's not until you get into the 1600s two generations into the Reformation that people start to get away from replacement theology because they're going back to a literal, consistent um, uh, interpretation of Scripture. So Arnold says, regarding 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, this is a favorite passage for those who teach replacement theology. They teach that what the Old Testament stated to be true of Israel, Peter now applies and states to be true of the church. Thus, they conclude that the church has replaced Israel. However, there's no hint in the epistle that Peter is addressing the church as a whole. On the contrary, in the epistle's introduction, he says, he stated that he's addressing Jewish believers who specifically comprised what was then, what was the then remnant of Israel, the Israel of God. He goes on to say, it's important to recognize that the contrast Peter makes here is not between the church and Israel, or between believers and unbelievers, or between unbelieving Jews and believing Gentiles. Rather, the contrast here is between the remnant and the non-remnant of Israel. I think that's important. I'm not buying everything that Arnold says. I think he overstates his case and went too far. And that's been part of the discussion with, with, with a lot of us, is I think he, he went too far now. Um, he goes, rather the contrast here is between remnant and the non-remnant. I think that's true, but the implication of that, I think, is where he went too far. Peter's point is that while Israel, the whole, failed to fulfill its calling, the remnant of Israel, that's church-age Jewish believers, the remnant of Israel has not failed to fulfill its calling. So let me give you about four points of summary here as to what's going on. First of all, numerous works which are justifiably critiquing and refuting replacement theology, run the danger of imposing a sound systematic theology on the text. And what do I mean by that? 
I mean, you read all these replacement theologians. You know they're wrong. You've got a systematic theology that says Israel and the church are distinct. That's, you, you derive that from Scripture, but that's your theological method. And then you just read that in, into the text. Uh, and you're so concerned with point two, you're so concerned with countering the false doctrine that you really aren't developing your theology biblically. Now, biblical theology doesn't mean what you think it means. Most people who haven't been to seminary think that biblical theology is the opposite of a theology that isn't based on the Bible. That's not what it means. Biblical theology means that you've gone through the exegetical process and you decide what, in 1 Peter, what do you learn about God in 1 Peter? What do you learn about sin in 1 Peter? What do you learn about salvation in 1 Peter? What, what does Peter tell you about those categories of systematic theology? That's doing biblical theology. It's exegetically based. It's the step that should come between exegesis and systematic theology. But what happens with, and we've all, we're all guilty of this, is you come along and you get, give a lot of uh, points on some doctrine, and you just throw verses in there. That, in a lot of ways, that's proof texting. And I've realized, as, and you've learned this too, as we've gone through Matthew on Sunday mornings and other books, that some of these passages that we thought meant one thing because they're just taken out of context, like where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. How many people use that for prayer? You look at the context, you develop it exegetically, you realize that doesn't have anything to do with prayer. It has to do with the exercise of church discipline. And the two or three are gathered, who are gathered together are the witnesses against the person who is out of line to confirm the indictment against them in the hopes that he'll change. doesn't have anything to do with prayer. But you hear a lot of people say, oh, if we want our prayer to be effective, let's get two or three of us together and then God will listen more. That's just based on bad exegesis and bad theology. So we have to make sure that when we read a set of verses like this, that we're not reading the, something from some other verse into this. That's what I'm getting at. So a second danger is to view passages only in terms of how they've been misinterpreted. And in turn, in order to correct, what happens when something... I had a friend's daughter was killed doing this ran off the side of the road, her tire went off the edge of the highway, and so she overcorrected to get back on the highway and flipped the car. That's what happens sometimes when you're so concerned about getting dealing with the erroneous interpretation of a passage that you overcorrect and flip your theology. I think that's what Arnold did. But a lot of what he says was a necessary correction. And it wasn't new to Arnold. Peter is written to Jews. Now, you have people like Kenneth Wiest, and you have a number of others that will start off, and they'll tell you it's written to Jews, but they never let that affect their interpretation of anything in the epistle. So what we're struggling with is how does that affect your interpretation of the epistle? So, third point, on the one hand, we must accept that the large number of early church fathers uh, accepted that it was written to a Jewish audience, as well as many others in church history. Since the Reformation, there have been numerous others who've recognized it, but the dominant view has been Gentiles, and I think that the reason it's most, most people think it's written to Gentiles is because that's the hangover from all those centuries of replacement theology where 
uh, the Jewishness of these epistles. James is also one of them. James is writing to those, uh, the 12 tribes who are scattered. Hebrews is written to, 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 to the priests. These are Jewish background believers that these epistles are written to to help them understand the significance of what happens and where they are in the body of Christ now. Fourth point, but in recognizing the Jewishness of the recipients, we must not overcorrect in a way that creates a conflict with passages which teach an equality in the body of Christ. And see, when what happens with Arnold's view, and you know I love Arnold, run into him in Israel just about every time I go over there, uh, and he's really helped, and he's very good in many, many areas, but we're not all good in every area, otherwise we wouldn't be needed. Uh, everybody blows it in, in different areas. Um, You've got to be careful to say that when you come down here and you talk about the, the priesthood of the believer, it, it, you can teach a priesthood of the believer without ever going to 1 Peter 2. But if you look it up in any theology, that's the only verse they quote. Roman, uh, Revelation 1.5 talks about the fact that we are a kingdom, priests to God. Okay, so the universal priesthood of the believer is not based on this, but this is the proof text that's always used. And nobody goes to the Revelation passages. But we're all one in the body of Christ. Galatians 3.27 says, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, bond or slave. Uh, you're all one in Christ. Now, obviously, some if I say all the men over here and all the women over here, nobody in this group is going to be gender confused and have a problem. We all know who the men, and you're still men and women. You're still male and female. How about that? Now, if we lived in a society where there were slaves, some of you might be slaves, and we could say slaves here, free, free men over there, and everybody could identify. But what Paul is saying is in Christ, there aren't spiritual distinctions between men and women, bond and slave. Why? Because in the Old Testament, uh, only free men and only men could get into the interior part of the temple. Women had to stay in the courtyard of the women. Uh, Gentiles had to stay further out. So uh, there were those distinctions. Paul isn't saying that these distinctions aren't eradicated in everyday life. They're just eradicated in terms of our access to God. But in the body of Christ, there's no distinction between Jew or Gentile like there was even in the Old Testament. In Ephesians 2.16... Paul says that the, on the cross that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, that is, Gentiles and Jews. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Pay attention to that terminology. He's using the imagery of a building. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We're going to see that idea of cornerstone uh, right here in verse verse 6. He's the chief cornerstone, choice, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And it's going to go on and talk about those who, who stumble over that. So, when we look at 1 Peter 2.9, your chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, how is Peter using this? And that is going to be important. He's just using it analogically as an analogy 
to, uh, uh, to, to the church, but he's talking about both. Now, let me have this diagram up here. That circle represents the body of Christ, and those are all Gentiles. But there's a subset that's the Jews, Jewish believers who trust in Christ. They're also called the remnant uh, by Paul, as we'll see. So everyone in the circle are church-age believers. They're equal members of the body of Christ. Whether they're Jew or Gentile, they're equal members of the body of Christ. There's no difference in them spiritually. They all have the same package of blessings at salvation. The Jews are a subset of the body of Christ called the remnant, uh, who now fulfill the, the plan of God, who fulfill uh, what was ultimately hoped would be done uh, would be accomplished by the Jews in the Old Testament. Third, what applies to the remnant. So, if if Peter is addressing the Jewish remnant here, which is what Arnold says, if he's addressing the Jewish remnant, it not only applies to the Jewish remnant. This is where, where I'm taking this. It would also apply to everybody else. But Peter isn't writing to everybody else. He's just writing to the Jewish remnant. So he's reminding them of what is significant for them. And this comes out of Romans 11.5, where Paul says, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant of Jews. Because that's the, the question in verse 1 is, has God done away with Israel? And the answer is no. There is at this present time a remnant according to the, the election of grace, and he's one of them. So now... We are to come to him as, a, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, that is these Jewish background believers, as living stones are being built up in a spiritual house. But what does Paul tell us about that spiritual house? It's built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, and the cornerstone is Jesus. So here Peter fits that together. He says, you're being built up in a spiritual house that's composed of Jews and Gentiles, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Now next time we're going to come back and start getting into the deals, into the details here. But what I'm saying is that in that first view that it's written to Gentiles, the second application of that said, but it's, it's, the church isn't replacing Israel. And, and, but the problem with that view is it says this is written to Gentile Christians, and it ignores and, and you know, the introduction is to whom it's, it's uh, addressed, and there's a significance to the fact that this is addressed to Jewish background believers. In the second view, that this is addressed to, to Jews... I think that some people uh, have overstated the significance of that to restrict any application of 1 Peter to only Jewish background believers. I think that it's addressed to Jewish background believers because that's who Peter's talking to, but it has application to every believer as well because we're all one in the body of Christ. So we'll come back and look at that next time. Father, thank you for this time. We are reminded you have a plan and a purpose for Israel. You have a plan and a purpose for the church. There are similarities. That many of the things that you uh, used and that are related to Israel can be 
used in relation to the church that doesn't make them identical. Uh, uh, um, you know, a dog has four legs and a face and nose, two eyes, two ears, and so does a horse, but that doesn't make them identical. They're, they're different. The similarities are important, but the differences are what distinguishes them. And so we must understand this and come to understand that what Peter is saying to his audience is foundational for us to understand who we are so that we can face and handle the challenges in life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.